There's a soft drizzle in the air as I bust my way to Chatterton on a Sunday in February, a folder full of homemade posters under my arm. When it comes to a writer from the 1930s who died in 1983, there's only so much that can be discovered online. It makes sense, I decide, to go to a few Chatterton locals at peak hours. As a last-ditch effort at finding anything, I tape up posters at the bars. Do you remember Jack Hilton? They ask in big black letters. That was Jack Chadwick on the long-lost Rochdale writer Jack Hilton, who wrote of 20th century working-class life like few others, really, but who has largely fallen through the gaps of Manchester's literary history, forgotten, faded. Until now. This is the Manchester Weekly from The Mill. Hello, I'm Daryl Morris, and this is the Manchester Weekly from The Mill with Yoshi Herman, the editor of The Mill. Hello, Yoshi. Hi. Got a cracking Sunday edition of the podcast this week, and we are going to um, we're going to sort of resurrect one of long forgotten greats of Manchester's literary scene, although not regarded as a great by many people for a long time. This is fascinating. Yeah, this was one of our most, or has turned into one of our most popular Mill stories to date. Um, it's written by Jack Chadwick, who is a new writer who's never written for us before, but who's wrote a brilliant long read about an author who he's kind of been on the trail of for the last couple of years. Jack Hilton, a Rochdale-based writer um, who wrote a brilliant um, novel that's been out of print for a very, very long time, and hopefully, given the reaction to the piece, won't be out of print for too much longer. So we thought we'd have Jack in and to talk to him about, about his piece and about this kind of literary quest that he's been on. Jack, welcome to the podcast. Hi, yeah. Thank Lovely you for being here. Oh, thank you for being with us. It's great to have you here. Um, okay, take us to the the working class movement library, which is where you first stumbled across Jack Hilton's work. So. Last year, I had this little habit of going over to Working Class Movement Library maybe once a week or so, just to get a change of scene. It had just opened after lockdown. And um, you go over there and it's, it's nice and you've got like these massive oak tables that you can sit on and just do work at. The thing about these oak tables is often they're just littered with things that other people have got out, that they've requested. And so you always have a little look through these piles. And um, one time I went last summer, I think it was even about a year ago, maybe in July last year, and uh, I noticed this cover of a crumbling, yellowed, uh, clearly ancient book uh, had been left on the table. Still don't know who exactly had left it there, or, you know, who had asked for it to be got out from whatever box it had been kept in. But it grabbed my attention immediately, because it has this cover with a skeleton in these uh, patched trousers kneeling, arms reaching out towards the sun, and, and then the name Caliban Shrieks on it. So, you know, I picked it up. It was very delicate. I had to be very careful with it. Uh, because the cover is literally crumbling away. We've now put it in plastic. But um, I picked it up and opened it, and it's, it's, it opens with this, you know, like, litany of, of Shakespearean quotes from the perspective of Caliban, written by this um, bloke from Rochdale called Jack Hilton, who, you know, uses the perspective of Caliban to sort of frame his own early life and, and indeed, a popular history of, of working people in, in Rochdale and Oldham with stories that, are, you know relevant to the lives of working class people in the whole of the North um, at that time. He was born in the first, first few weeks of the 20th century. So, I was, you know, whatever task I went to the library with, completely blown out of the water. <laughs> I ended up there until closing. I was kicked out at uh, about five o'clock by Lynette, the um, former librarian head of the library there. Um, and, uh, you know, completely distracted by it. And I went back, you know, a few days after and finished a book and 
And I thought, where did this guy's story go? And had you ever heard of him before? No, I hadn't. No, never. And um, Lynette had, obviously. Lynette Lynette had been at the library for um, about, I don't know, 20 years or so. And had come across the book before, but didn't know much about the um, the author, Jack. So uh, she put it out to a few library regulars, you know, who'd, who'd maybe you know, been at the library, been around the library's collection for even longer, 40, 50 years, maybe. And, uh, you know, if they did know that he was, uh, you know, did know the basics of his biography, that he'd been born in, in Rochdale, that he'd lived a lot of his life in Oldham, that he'd stopped writing quite suddenly in the late 40s, but that he'd produced some of his fantastic, extraordinary novels, about five novel-sized works um, in the 30s and 40s that were very well regarded. Like he wrote in the same magazine as um, Dylan Thomas. A lot of the people who were really close to um, D.H. Lawrence were, were huge fans of Hilton and saw him as a sort of, not a second coming of Lawrence, but as a sort of um, continuing the same kind of mission of, of prodding at the boundaries of, of, of what constitutes good literature and what stories can be told as part of the canon. So yeah, that was that was what I found out from the initial sort of um, call around of library regulars, and obviously it piqued my interest further. And then over the coming months, I just set about trying to find out as much as I could about Hilton, about what had happened to him, about anyone else who'd you know gone on the same sort of who'd started or you know even finished the same journey as me of discovery. You know, put me in touch with a network of great, fantastic people who'd um, you know similar to me come across his work and tried their utmost to find out and finish his story. Um, and part of that is looking for the copyrights that everyone had been aware of as being lost since his death in 1983. And what does that mean, copyrights lost? Like, how, do, how does it work? So, uh, authors, there's two types of copyrights. One's the, you know, what publishers have, and it's the sort of commercial licence to publish a book. There's also authorial copyrights, which is uh, what you keep with you. Um, it's very intangible. You, you just like a, It's a right that you have as the author, um, and it can outlive you. So you have it obviously while you're while you're alive, unless you agree for it to be given over to someone else through a contract or whatnot. But you have it until you die, and then after that, it even outdates you by about seventy years. So that's why you know a lot of big texts written in the fifties are still, even though the authors are dead, are still you know the copyrights still exist. For example, Lord of the Rings with the Tolkien estate. But when Jack Hilton died in nineteen eighty three, no one no one knew that he'd been alive necessarily still mm. because he'd been completely off the radar his death did flag up his life to a few people but then it was very unclear to them who his estate had gone to who his collected rights had passed to you, after de- his you, death. you describe it in the pieces uh, almost as if he landed from nowhere blew the doors off literary modernism and then disappeared again <laughs> yeah basically kicked the doors down did it with such charm and um, and warmth and um and and humor uh, a deep deep kind of uh, of, of sarcasm that is very I, I think quite familiar actually to anyone with a northern granddad to be honest mm. where you don't quite know if they're joking or not but, <laughs> yeah. uh, but you know <laughs> it turns very out true. he wasn't he wasn't okay can we just spend a bit of time on perhaps why that happened why he wasn't revered and why he didn't reach the heights of Orwell and you talk a lot about um, the the nature of publishing in that time and what he was saying and how sort of I guess sort of like his style of writing and and what he had to say for himself was met with short shrift by publishers yes totally um so orwell had a lot going for him in terms of in terms of, of means uh, obviously he was an, an exitonian um, he had this massive network of people of rich people that he could draw on to support his writing he could travel to say catalonia he could decide to take a holiday up to 
somewhere and write about it as he did with, with Wigan mm. for The Road to Wigan Pier, which was mainly his, his first big book. Jack Hilton obviously had none of that. And when he started writing, it was pure fluke. Basically, he'd left behind a few uh, really uh, dirty old pockmarked with plaster dust um, notebooks at this uh, night school that he'd been going to in Rochdale, part of a working men's educational association. And his tutor at the association had uh, taken the books back to his own gaff and uh, read them and thought, oh my God, what on earth is this student capable of? And sent them without Jack realising to this um, this fellow called uh, John Middleton Murray, who um, was this pioneering critic who'd uh, headed up this um, literary journal called The Adelphi, who then wrote to Hilton inviting him to share what his journals contained with the audience of the Adelphi on the pages of the Adelphi. And that's where Caliban Shrieks' first novel came from. It was then picked up by someone, in the, a publisher in the Adelphi Network called uh, Jonathan Cape, who then um, published a book. Jack didn't get much money for it, it didn't have a massive run, but it put him in touch with all these critics and names that are now really big, but at the time maybe weren't so big, like Auden and um, Orwell. And the response was utterly glowing, and um, the capacity of the text to sort of confront working-class life in a way that was... Not treating work-class life as if it was sort of like um, a nature documentary in a way that some, maybe someone like Orwell did, where workers were sort of specimens to be examined and their, their lives recorded and documented. But from the inside of, of working-class life, uh, charting the, the process of um, how working-class people formulated their ideas about work and, and family and whatnot. So... Hilton is really taking you on this journey of his own critical self-examination and uh, critical self-discovery and, and inviting the, you as a reader to do the same about, um, about your own working life. And I think that's something that really made a lot of uh, patrician publishers very uncomfortable because obviously it is calling out the, un, um, the unearned nature of, of their power over, over uh, the literary canon, over, over just life in general, uh, you know, the, that they could write and set themselves up as publishers and be these gatekeepers just purely through family wealth, um, without ever having to write much themselves or, you know, at least not having to write much of any value, really. Um, so the response from, from critics was positive, the response from publishers less so. A few publishers, like I say, did entertain the idea of publishing working-class authors in the 30s. This was a response to the rise of the working-class movement, the rise of trade unions and the Communist Party, who, um, uh, you know, sort of put their foot in the door, wedged it open a little bit, but then that, that swung shut again with World War II, and these publishers went back to their default position of, oh, you know what? Uh, no one wants to read about smelly, dirty people living boring lives in humdrum backwaters. Um, and that, this idea that there could never be anything great, um, nothing that really pushed the boundaries, no kind of experimental writing done either about these people or by these people. And one countess, uh, uh, Jonathan Cape, uh, the big publisher who uh, Hilton was in talks with for, for uh, a long while, even in 1940, I think it was, said, you know what, the proletarian novel is dead, the door is shut again. The really sad thing is, with um, the 1950s, that door suddenly swung back open, but it was too late for Hilton, or he felt at least. It was too too late for him to go back to writing. Uh, we're not clear, actually, what he made of the, the next wave of, um, of the so-called angry young men who did write about the working class and, and from the perspective of the working class and uh, yeah, produced plays and novels and eventually also TV scripts and stuff about working class life. But it was too late for Hilton, um, he felt. And also what they were doing was quite different. It was very still, it was very, very much London-focused still. Um, yeah. And a lot of these working-class people were still in London and still yeah. there was a separation from the North. Um, 
And, and something that really struck me in your piece was that Hilton goes on to be a plasterer and, 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 and that becomes his sort of career. He doesn't become a, a writer for most of his life. But you say that he kind of goes around Manchester plastering, you know, the homes of, of affluent people whose narrow literary tastes had effectively curtailed his writing, mm. had curtailed his writing career. And there's a sense in your piece, there's a sort of an underlying anger maybe or an observation that there's a huge amount of talent being wasted at that time mm. because mainstream publishers are not appreciating talents like his. Is yeah. that kind of how you felt? Absolutely. And I, th- I still think that that is the case. And maybe for a, for a brief period of a few decades in the, la- in the latter half of the last century, that maybe there was a point where um, working class people could actually go out and um, have their talents recognised. And I think since then... There's been this massive slide back and pushback against that in the same way that there was against Hilton at the end of the 30s. And I think telling this story, especially telling it and making it uh, something that that working class people everywhere in this country are aware of, uh, could actually have a really positive social benefit. It could give people confidence to actually set their own standards and to be able to just you know get put pen to paper or, or do whatever it could, it could apply to any any other area of, of art or creativity just to challenge this idea that they are not capable of it just because they come from certain places and backgrounds your journey in this as well uh, jack is is kind of key right because you obviously set about trying to find out more about this this guy and flung yourself into a pub i think uh, <laughs> to start with with some flyers can you take us through that how you came to sort of piece together the people that were around jack mm. at that time it was a last ditch effort I'd, I'd spent about six months trying to reach out to people who'd already done research on hilton there'd been about I'd say four different efforts made over the last four decades since his death to to kind of work out where the copyrights had gone. A really great author, Andy Croft, had put adverts in newspapers from very early on, from like 1984, trying to to find the people who had um, known Jack and who might be able to tell someone about where the copyrights ended up. There'd been an effort in 2014, the last one, uh, by some fantastic academics who'd done a lot of work and research tracing Hilton's family tree. My own effort, I was very aware from the beginning that I was, you know, building on work that these these people had done. So I'd for months spent time looking into their stuff, trying to use the internet and um, and archives to to get there myself, realising that it wasn't working. So I thought it was a last, last-ditch effort. I'll throw myself into a few of his locals um, around where I'd worked out, but he'd, he died in Chatterton. So I went around um, a few pubs, a few of their names escaped me. The one that I had success in was actually the closest to where we'd lived. It called the Sportsman's Arms, you know, it's on Denton Lane in Chatterton, the centre of Chatterton. And I went in there on an afternoon, Sunday afternoon, in February, early on in February. So it was, it was actually unseasonably warm, but still quite horrible weather on the bus over. And uh, I went in and I, I went over to the, uh, to the bar and asked if anyone knew about Hilton. I said, no, we've only been managing this place for, for a few months, actually, but the owners might. So I thought, oh, well, OK, they've owned the pub since the, since the 70s. There's a chance here that I'll get somewhere. It turns out that before I'd even finished my pint, there was a woman who's uh, not given me any permission to share her name or whatnot, and she's a regular of this pub, so I don't want to be too... Um, but she's uh, in her late 70s, and uh, she remembered not only Jack, but uh, his two best mates, and could tell me a lot about what they were like as a trio in the corner of a pub, putting the world to rights. What was but, that like when you got that, when you had that conversation? I was absolutely through. chuffed. I was absolutely <laughs> chuffed, but then I came away from it thinking, oh, OK, well, this is fantastic, but is it going to lead to you know, finding out where the copyrights went and finding out what happened to Jack in in the rest of his life. It's great detail. It's it's added some detail onto that, but is it going to actually lead to the copyrights? 
basically yeah, I got the name of um, Hilton's two mates um, Brian and Bill Bill had died ages ago but Brian was much younger than the other two and um, he sadly passed away last year in the government uh, death registries I, I found out that he'd had a, he had a widow called Mary whose address I was able to find on, on the death certificate and um, and I went over to Mary's a week after um, on a Sunday exactly a week after and knocked on just just around the corner just down the street from the pub and uh, I got no response uh, what I later found out is that Mary's a you know really devout Catholic church going woman so of course I picked the wrong day to, to <laughs> rock up I, put, I popped a little note through handwritten and then I think it was uh, a week later that uh, I got um, I got a little email back saying um, I'm delighted to hear about my dear old friend Jack and that set up you know, a series of, of meetups between me and Mary. At first, I went around to hers, brought some custards from the local Martins. <laughs> and um, we had coffee and spoke for hours about Jack. She told me all of, all about how she knew him. And I was shocked in a way to, to hear how little she knew about his early life, even though he had basically filled this role of a grandfather for her two kids. And um, he'd been around for tea several times a week. Her husband, Brian, and, and Jack had you know, spent hours, spent, you know, years going around these pubs talking um, just as a little trio because Jack was quite quiet um, and um, yeah then uh, that's sort of how I began to piece together the, the sort of cast around Jack in his later life um, then I, I also figured out that it, that Mary had been the one to receive uh, the copyrights wow. To, wow. Um, without ever realising that Jack had been a writer mm. because of the way that these rights work is that they pass on if you don't specify where they go in a contract or in your will they just pass on to whoever you leave you know the rest of your estate to and there's always that sort of clause at the end of a will or grant or whatever it says and i leave the rest of my estate to blah 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 blah. um so it passed on to brian who then when brian passed away the rights had had passed on to mary when i explained this to her and said that you know these rights are crucial to getting jack a second hearing to correcting this historical wrong um she was she was really keen to to, for me to to basically sit off and and do what i could do to to make it so and um do it, you know, with this mission in mind of of correcting a historical wrong, but also of putting out there an author who could teach the value of working class creativity to people, not just in Manchester, but elsewhere. Wow. So you now control that copyright and you are on a mission to find a publisher. And I believe after you wrote the piece for us, you've heard from a few people in that sort of world, haven't you? Yeah, he, well, b- before writing the piece, I'd put a few feelers out um, months ago, but um, uh, it, it's, it, was, it was difficult to... Uh, I granted didn't put much work into it because I was still at that point unconvinced that, that this could actually have legs. The Mill piece really has just blown those fears away completely and proven that there is this huge audience quite varied audience for Hilton and for for bringing Hilton back in uh, the few days since the piece came out last Saturday the piece as you know I've, I've had basically expressions of interest from three publishers one of them a university press uh, two smaller publishers and then the, the really special thing is I've had loads of people who work in publishing offering to help um, independently of their, of their jobs, offering to help just craft these proposals for um, for bringing Caliban Shrieks back out. So good. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. There's also been a lot of, of press around the world, of freelancers, of um, people who write for magazines in, in New York, in London, um, all over the place in Berlin, keen to port and find out and potentially also, you know, further cover the story because there's a whole mountain of stuff that... Um, that could be said about Hilton and that could be shared about him, not just about his life, but, you know, he wrote he wrote five books 
Even I've not been able to read. Um, I've been looking into him for years. I've, I've only ever read Caliban Shrieks. I've not had a chance to read his other works because they are so squirreled away and hidden. Yeah. The next task for me, I'm clear, is to go and retrieve a suitcase full of his old manuscripts from uh, from Dorset. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so that's the kind yeah. of thing that the, um, that the article's actually uncovered is that I've had an offer of coming to collect this on the back of it. That's amazing. Yeah. Who are you collecting them from? From a, a guy who'd previously been uh, on a search for Hilton. He'd managed to wow. track down where this box of old files from his attic in his uh, council flat on Denton Lane yeah. uh, where that had gone to he'd gone, gone to a neighbour who he'd then tracked down um, and then the neighbour had given the briefcase to uh, to this um, other lad also called Jack Jack Windle Dr Jack for Windle. a lot of Jacks in this whole scenario a lot of Jacks a lot of Jacks, <laughs> lot of Jacks. he's like four or five at this point I so Jack, Jack's going to meet uh, Jack about Jack yeah but actually it's, it's tragic and exciting to, to imagine that perhaps some of the rawest um, writing on and there was perhaps the rawest portrait of working class life at that time is to be read isn't it and, and yeah. incredibly exciting what what happened to Jack? How how did he die? So um, he, his wife, um, also called Mary, it's a, another you know, another case of like <laughs> quite a few Marys involved in this story. Mm. Um, his wife Mary passed away in 1980. By this point, Jack was was 80, um, and uh, you know he was he was perfectly content with his life. Uh, he was very proud to have been a plasterer, to have like uh, Yoshi said earlier, to have gone around Manchester beautifying these houses immensely proud of that he was very comfortable with his life in in um, Chatterton um, but he took the decision to uh, basically to end his own life in 1983 he thought you know at this point he was he was 83 but it's only I'm only going to get um, more sort of um, unhealthy and I think his, his, his perspective at this point was basically just to be like you know what that's that my time's done I'm checking out and I think it speaks, as I say at the end of a piece, it speaks to this inc- incredible ability that Jack had just to sort of set his own terms. And that's evident from Caliban Streets, where he's, he's going around uh, the country and uh, he, he never takes anything that's done to him, done against him, any exploitation, he never takes it without trying to push back as much as possible. That was a very powerful ending that you had on your piece. If anyone hasn't read the piece yet, go to mantismill.co.uk and it's now on the right-hand side in the sort of top stories ever yeah. published on the mill. Bounced straight into the top um, stories. And it, it's had a huge response, huge reaction. Obviously, we want to follow it because, you know, Jack's going to be carrying on this journey of discovery and we would love to have you on the podcast again and hear about the documents you go and find. Interestingly, it's sort of... It was this podcast that kind of has led us all to be here because I first met you, Jack, in a pub on a night out. We're introduced by a mutual friend. And when I mentioned the mill, you mentioned that you knew the mill from the podcast. So you've kind of been listening to the podcast for ages. So it's very nice to to have you on here. It's You only wrote this piece for the mill probably because of you originally came across the podcast. So it's a lovely sort of virtuous uh, circle. Nice. Um, here we are. And um, well done on your amazing work on this. And we hope to hear an update in the in the coming months. Yeah. Thank you, Yoshi. I really do think that this is the kind of piece that couldn't have actually emerged without the mill being in existence. I think this is probably the, the main thing that stopped it from emerging in 2014 when the last big attempt was made because there simply wasn't anywhere for this kind of story to be done and to bring together the kind of people who would be so keen to see this kind of story done justice. I appreciate you saying that. And uh, and here is too, Jack. Uh, you'll be back on this podcast, my friend, I'm sure, to tell me more when, when you dig into that treasure chest of uh, some more of his writings. We, we want to hear all about it. Thank you, Jack. Uh, don't forget to do what Jack did and subscribe. ManchesterMill.co.uk. Like and subscribe to this podcast too so you get it in your podcast feed every week. And we're back next Thursday with your news brief. <laughs> <laughs>